We'll now have a reading from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, and this is and from verse 4 onwards. Paul's writing to Philippians here. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the house of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, We have a reading now from the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work. Honour your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or male, or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. When all the people witness the thunder and lightning, the sound of a trumpet and a mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance, And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. This is a picture that 
I took a few years ago now uh, on a mountaintop outside Niederau in the Austrian Tyrol. I'm just going to leave it up there as we preach, so if you, if you get bored, then it's something to look at. It will become clear why it's there as we go through. But I wonder, over the summer, did anybody else get to see any of the World Athletic Championships that were taking place here in London at the Olympic Park? with the, the best athletes from around the world doing battle against both themselves and each other, all for the glory of taking the gold medal. Do you remember Usain Bolt pulling up in agony in the 4 by 100 meters? We all thought he was going to do it. Mo Farah taking gold in the 10,000 meter run. Well. The training schedules that these athletes put themselves through are rigorous and exhaustive. Or maybe I mean rigorous and exhausting. I have to confess I was never much of a sprinter when I was at school. It just wasn't me. Uh, along with, if I'm honest, any kind of ball game. Uh, that, that just was not where my skill set lay. The, the sudden burst of energy that is required to propel the successful sprinter down the 100-meter yard dash, whatever it was in those days, in kind of 10 seconds or thereabouts, has never been anywhere close to my capability. Uh, I looked it up. The National Institute for Medical Research describes the short sprint like this. An athlete accelerates their body to reach a speed of more than 40 kilometers an hour in about 50 strides. The sprinter may not actually even need to breathe for the 10 seconds of the race, but the heart will pump about 200 milliliters of blood in every heartbeat, which works out if they went on for a full minute at about four buckets full. But they do it in 10 seconds. Well, not in my body, is all I can say. Sprinting, throwing, hitting, jumping, all of these and more leave me exhausted and in last place. I've only ever once tried squash, and the friend who booked the squash court said it was the biggest waste of a court fee he had ever seen. This is not, however, to say that I have no athletic abilities. Cycling, jogging, swimming, they're all sports at which I was okay. Not great, you understand, but okay. And I continue to swim a mile, that's 60 lengths of the oasis over the road, several times a week. You see, I'm more of a long-distance stamina kind of person than I am a hit-it-hard-or-run-fast kind of person. I might not be very quick over 100 yards, but I will still be going five miles later when the sprinter has long since packed up and gone for a shower. And this ability to keep going and going and going has stood me in good stead on various occasions over the years. Liz, my wife, did her Gold Duke of Edinburgh expedition when she was at school, and so sometimes when we're away on our holidays, we find ourselves surveying various unlikely-looking mountains, with Liz poring excitedly over an ordnance survey map, plotting our route to the top. In fact, next week, we head off to Peru, and altitude sickness allowing, we will be taking the high path from Machu Picchu to the peak of Hyana Picchu, so I hope I'll see you in three weeks when I'm back. And believe me, when you're climbing up a mountain, you need all the long-distance stamina you can get. 
it was Liz who introduced me on one of our early holidays together to the Lake District to the concept of the false peak. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about here. It's when you can see the top of the mountain in front of you and your hopes rise and you walk that little bit faster and you strain that little bit more because you're excited that you're nearly at the top. And then when you get there, it is a false peak. And you realize it isn't the top of the mountain at all. It was merely an interim horizon. And that actually you're only now a, just a tiny part of the way up. The vast bulk of the mountain still rises up before you, still waiting to be climbed. We had just this experience on one of our walking holidays in the Austrian Tyrol. Having found what looked like a mountaintop lake on a map, we set off in search of it, only to discover that the footpaths were nowhere near where they were supposed to be. How does that happen? And so we climbed and we climbed and we climbed, and every time we thought we'd reached the top, the horizon had moved and we realized there was yet more climbing in front of us. But by that time, we were committed and we couldn't really just turn around and go back down again. And encountering a false peak can be one of the most depressing experiences because it demoralizes the climber. It saps all the enthusiasm that has got them thus far, and they're forced to contemplate the much greater climb that still lies in front of them. Now, I don't know whether St. Paul was a regular mountain walker. Certainly, he went to all the best schools. He trained to be a Pharisee. So you can be fairly certain that if there was a first century equivalent to the gold Duke of Edinburgh's expedition, then Paul would have done it to completion. And knowing Paul, he would probably have got top marks in all categories. After all, he does rather go on in our passage this morning about how completely brilliant he is at pretty much everything he's ever turned his hand to. With shades of what I can only describe as Trump-like boasting, he says, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. To which I always find myself wanting to mutter, show off. Whether it's keeping the law to the nth degree or persecuting Christians, Paul was the best, the very best. In fact, no one had ever been better at persecuting Christians than Paul was. Fact. Well, anyway. I suspect Paul did know something of the joys and frustrations of climbing mountains because it is precisely this image which he uses in the second part of the passage which Nigel read for us. Having made his point about how great he is at keeping the law, he then has this rare moment of humility when he says, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. In fact, more than that, he says he regards everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul says, that for the sake of Jesus, he has suffered the loss of all things. And he regards them now as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ. Now I know something of the pressure to achieve. I went to that kind of school. I understand that in some schools, it's the nerdy swats who get bullied. In my school, it was the precise opposite of this. The academic excellers were lauded and those of us who got mediocre marks were derided. Nothing was ever good enough for my school, short of straight A's in all subjects. 
which as a mere 1A at GCSE, in RE, in case you're wondering, I figured stick with what you know, and no A's at all in my A-levels, this marked me out as something of an underachiever amongst my peers. Well, Paul knows something, I think, of that feeling of not hitting the peak, not attaining the goal, because in spite of all his excellence, he had come to the realisation that there was so much more that lay before him than the peaks of achievement that he had already left behind him. So he uses the image of pressing on towards a goal in the face of discouragement and exhaustion as a metaphor for the Christian life, which has been both his own experience and the experience of those he's writing to. Paul begins by defining his goal. And he says that his goal in life is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection so that he may himself attain resurrection from the dead. This is the goal to which Paul is pushing, to become like Christ, to join Christ in resurrection, which sounds like a fantastic goal, doesn't it? I mean, who could argue with that as a goal? Don't we all want to become like Christ, the greatest, the bestest human of all time? Don't we all want to live forever and see the hold of fear and death broken? If ever there's a carrot to dangle in front of people, surely this is it, isn't it? Except, of course, things aren't so simple or indeed attractive. Because then Paul spells out how he is hoping to achieve this goal. And he says that he hopes to become like Christ, not in terms of being wise or good or holy, but in terms of sharing in Christ's sufferings. Well, now, hold on a minute. This is all starting to sound a little bit less attractive. Imagine the baptismal service. Brothers and sisters, dearly beloved of God, I want to challenge you all tonight to become like Christ. Brothers and sisters, have you seen Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ? Well, that's the path I'm inviting you to begin treading. Will all those who feel the Lord stirring their hearts to begin a life of suffering and rejection please come to the front in the next hymn? But that's kind of what Paul says. If we are to know the power of the resurrection of Christ we first need to know him in his death and his suffering, because without suffering and death, there can be no experience of resurrection. As my dad says to me on a regular basis when I phone him to moan about something or other, Simon, he says, no one ever said it was going to be easy. And yet, so often, we do seem to tell people that becoming a Christian will be easy. Or if we don't say it explicitly, we imply it in so many ways. So often we make conversion the goal which we encourage people to press on towards, as if that's the peak of the mountain. In so many of the programs for evangelism, so beloved by churches desperate to stave off numerical decline from alpha courses through contagious Christian training into purpose-driven mission statements, we put so much of our efforts into helping people become Christians as if that's the be-all and end-all of following Christ. It just isn't. I can't remember a time when I wasn't a Christian, and I still feel like I've got a blooming great mountain in front of me. I mean, you know, it's no bad thing, I'm sure, to want to encourage people to follow Jesus. A decade or two of evangelism 
following on the church decline statistics for this country may be an obvious solution. The Baptist Union jumped on the bandwagon in 2007, changing its strapline to encouraging missionary disciples. Ten years on, it's not working. We have made, all too often, conversion the goal. And we struggle then with our potential converts as they press through their doubts and their questions and we invest huge resources in helping them to realize that the answer to the question of sin and loneliness is a relationship with Jesus Christ who will forgive them and never leave them by the power of his spirit. Well, that's great, but if we make conversion the ultimate goal, we are selling people very, very short about what following Jesus is about and what concerns me in all of this is that conversion, as it is so often promoted, becomes this false peak, which ultimately leaves people demoralized and exhausted and utterly unprepared for the huge mountain that still lies in front of them. For Paul, the goal was never conversion. That wasn't even his experience. Sure, even as dramatic a Damascus Road experience as Paul's, was not understood by him as being the goal he was aiming for. It was merely a false peak, the first of many. Actually, maybe the word false is slightly misleading here because, of course, false peaks do still have to be ascended. They still require effort and exertion and determination, but what's false about a false peak is that it's not the top of the mountain. Even though from the perspective of the approaching climber, it may appear to be so. From the perspective of the pre-Christian, if there is even such a thing, who is journeying towards conversion, it can sometimes be hard to see beyond the particular horizon of giving one's life to Jesus and taking a decision to follow him. But from the point of view of the lifelong Christian, looking back over 50, 60, 70 years of faith, the mountain that was conversion now seems little more than a little foothill to the much greater mountain of faith. So we need to tell people who are on a journey towards faith that the goal is not conversion. The goal is becoming like Christ in his suffering and death in order that we might become like Christ in the power of his resurrection. And what worries me about some Christians I know is that they've struggled over the peak of conversion and then they have sat down to catch their breath, sometimes for months, sometimes for years, sometimes for a lifetime. It's like they get to that first false peak and then they turn around and spend the rest of their lives looking back over how far they've come without ever turning to face forwards again and beginning the journey of pressing on towards the much greater goal that still lies in front of them. Paul says in verse 12, I have not yet already obtained or reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Paul knows full well that he has not yet reached the goal. Even Saint Paul has not reached the goal. The man who had the most dramatic of all conversion stories, who went on to shape Christian history through his brilliant pastoral and theological thinking and writing, he knew that he had not yet reached the goal of his life. And I really struggle with Christianity that tells people that the moment you follow Jesus, you've reached the goal of your life, because you haven't. There is so much more. He knew of the struggle that still lay before him, and so he pressed on 
through life to an eternity with Christ. And he gives us a glimpse of his motivation to continue the journey. He says, I press on to make the goal my own because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. See, I don't think it starts with us at all. I think it starts with God, who reaches out to us in love and draws us to himself. And sure, there are those moments that feel like we've just climbed a peak along the way. I remember sitting in the Vine Baptist Church, Seven Oaks, when I was 10 years old. I just watched a friend of mine get baptised, and I, I already knew God loved me and that I loved God, but I can remember sitting there listening to the hymn we were singing, uh, Just As I Am, Without One Plea. And we always sung that at baptisms. And I had this moment of realization that I needed to take a step of decisive faith in following Jesus. I needed to be prepared to speak out publicly about the fact that I knew God loved me. And so I asked for baptism. And the minister said, you're too young, wait four years. So I waited four years and then I was baptized. And yeah, you know, that was a mountain. But I was 14, I was 10. You don't stop at the moment of baptism. If you're not yet baptized and you want to get baptized, come and talk to me. We'll do that. But that is not the goal of your Christian walk with following Christ. It's just the start. And there's so much more ambiguity and there is so much more difficulty and there is so much more suffering and so much more challenge still to come. And we need to be realistic about that. This is a hard path that we tread. We press on to make the goal our own because Jesus has already made us his own. We don't have any choice, really. Jesus has reached out to us in love and he is drawing us to himself and to God. It's kind of grace and faith combining in this verse to draw us through the hardships of life towards the goal of knowing the power of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. I'm not proposing to get into some great debate here about predestination. What is clearly implied in Paul's writing is action on both sides. In the cross, Christ makes us his own, and in life, we are to press on to make Christ our own. And this very act of pressing on implies an ongoing struggle. Just because we have had a sense that we are forgiven and our sins have been taken away from us temporarily until we do them again tomorrow, doesn't mean we are suddenly free from temptation. It doesn't mean that we suddenly have some miraculous ability to resist evil under all circumstances. It's not for nothing that when Jesus was asked how to pray, he instructed his disciples to ask on a regular basis for deliverance from evil and the avoidance of temptation. We are not there yet. We are at best part way up the mountain. And from time to time, we will stumble and we will fall, and sometimes we will fall and roll back, meaning we have to reclimb over ground we've already covered before. Sometimes we get thoroughly lost. But through it all, Paul says, we are to press on towards the goal. And sometimes we face hardships that are not of our making. The spiritual equivalent of an avalanche descends upon us and threatens to sweep us away. Sometimes life doesn't work out as we planned. Sometimes marriages fail. Sometimes people we love get ill. Sometimes we get ill. Sometimes careers don't work or our children don't turn out as we'd thought and hoped they would. And I could go on because life is immensely complex and very difficult sometimes. 
And all these times are perhaps the most difficult times in the Christian journey, because it is at these times that we may find ourselves doubting God's very call on our lives, when the avalanche never seems to stop, when we find ourselves struggling to even stand upright, it can feel as if there's nothing else to do but collapse in a heap and be swept back down the mountain to the very bottom. Well, it may be small consolation, but Paul knew about hardship, both those of his own making and those over which he had no control. He knew all about guilt and sin. Never forget, this is the man who put Christians to death. He knew all about unfair treatment. He faced beatings and imprisonments for no crime other than proclaiming the salvation that comes in Christ Jesus. Sometimes good people are detained for no reason other than the fact that they have decided to follow Jesus. And so Paul knew all about loss and sorrow and he wrote on occasions with tears in his eyes to those he loved as he shared with them in their grief. And in all of this, his response was to press on, to not give up the struggle. He said, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of Christ Jesus. And the only conclusion I can draw from this is that the Christian life is going to be sometimes one of struggle and hardship. And anyone who tries to tell you differently... Anyone who tries to say that if you follow Jesus faithfully, he will give you blessings and that you will get health and wealth and prosperity or whatever they dress it up as, I think are lying. Sure, there are some fantastic views along the way. There are occasional places of refuge from the storms where we can rest a while. There are stretches of ground which are flat and easy in between the stretches which are steep and treacherous. But fundamentally, the walk of faith is an upward climb towards a prize. And this sense of journey and struggle brings with it, I think, an inherent sense of dissatisfaction. The person who makes their camp on the plateau just beyond the peak of conversion and settles down to enjoy the view is not living the life of the Christian disciple. The true follower of Christ is forever dissatisfied with the way things are and forever pressing on to see things change. The call of Christ on our lives is to be a people who want the world to be different to what it is. We're called to be those who are the prophets, who are prepared to speak out our dissatisfaction at the way things are. And I think sometimes that's really hard to do. Because taking a stand against the prevailing wind of the status quo, either in church life or denominational life or culture outside of church, in the world in which we live most of our lives when we're not here for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, it's really hard to do, to speak out against the pressure to conform. But that is our calling. We are to be those who blaze the trail onwards towards the prize of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Because it is in Christ alone that new life emerges where there is death. So when we look around us and we see people in whom hope and love have died, it is Christ alone who can bring new life. When we see the death of justice, when we see the death of righteousness, it is the power of Christ's resurrection which alone can bring new life. 
When we see the death of relationships, it is Christ alone who can bring new life. And this is the goal for which we press on. The goal of the transforming power of Christ's resurrection. Nothing else would be worth this struggle. And nothing else is enough to make it worth giving up the struggle. And so we press on towards the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Thirty years ago, I heard a song. I wouldn't say quite that the song changed my life, but it has become the soundtrack to my life. Uh, It's the U2 song. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Some of you will know it. In a moment, you're all going to know it because I'm going to make you listen to it. I've long said, I want this song at my funeral, please. I still haven't found what I'm looking for is not an expression of a loss of faith. It is an expression of the yearning, the desire to keep pressing on, to never give up, to aim for the goal which draws us onward through life. Life is a struggle and a journey, and we have to press on towards the goal of knowing Christ Jesus in his power of his resurrection. Let us come before the Lord in prayer. Creator, redeemer, and sustainer, help us to see you and know you in death and suffering. Help us to become like you in the power of your resurrection. Give us strength to push forward on the mountain of faith when all around us seems bleak. We lift those that we have read of in the news this week that have been sexually assaulted. And we think of all those who have been hurt and oppressed in this way. We pray for healing, for freedom, for love and for trust to be rebuilt. We pray for the perpetrators. We pray for redemption. Help us push forward. We think of those this week who have lost their lives in the California fires and all those affected by natural disasters around this world that lose possessions, that lose family. We think of those that are affected by climate change. And we pray for redemption. Lord, help us push forward. We pray this week as we see more cuts to benefits, those oppressed by austerity. We ask for freedom. We ask for provision. We ask for courage to stand up and to speak out. We pray for those detained by a corrupt system. We pray for our leaders.
outpouring of wisdom. Help us to see change. Help us to bring about change. Help us to push forward. We pray this week for those in our community who are ill, who are struggling with physical ailments. We think of Alan in hospital this week. We pray for those that are struggling with grief and loss in our community right now. We ask for your comfort. And we pray for those overwhelmed by jobs, by work, by stress, by anxiety. Give us your peace. Help us to push forward in all these things. And we lift up our community to you. We pray for those ministries that have been part of this community for years and years. That take time and energy each week to run. And we pray for new things and new opportunities. Walk with us, step by step, in the small and the mundane. Give us your strength. Help us to push forward. Help us to know you in that death and suffering and to be like you in the fullness of your resurrection. Amen.